You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 2021 film, Dune. So before we start talking, uh, this movie is, as, as of now, still in theaters... So it's still fresh, so we will be spoiling it. So if you have not seen Dune and you want to see it, there's your warning. (laughs) So now, usually at the beginning of the show is when we do a plot summary. I feel that there is so much plot into this movie that if we did that, we would spend the whole show discussing the plot and not having enough time to talk about anything else. So would you still want to do a plot summary? Well, uh, you can do it most in, in a very rudimentary way, right? Yes. So this story takes place roughly 800 years in the future. Now, I believe this isn't... None of these planets are Earth. This right. is a complete fantasy world. Yes. But this is an imperial galaxy... Um, and we mainly follow House Atreides. They live on the uh, the planet of Caledon, and this planet is mostly water. Mm-hmm. And Leto Atreides is the leader of the house. He has a son named Paul, and not a wife, but a concubine named Jessica. Is a Bene Gesserit. They are this elite group, all women. Um, I, I guess they're. Like, you could say they're witches, almost. They have this power, mainly with this thing called the voice that can get people to do things. And I have to say, they'll do is just say it in a certain yeah. way. It's like they're, mind control. They're, they're, they're similar to, in the Star Wars universe, the, the Jedi. Yes. They're capable of mind control. And it's interesting in this universe that it is a matriarchal system. Uh and the uh, according to the, the the eschatology or the mythology that the, the group has is, um, and this is kind of plot ex- exposition too. It's kind of impossible not to do nothing but plot exposition with yes. this story. But um, uh, apparently, Jessica was supposed to birth a female who was going to have a, a, a significant part, a, amount of training in this power. This prophesized leader called the Quetzalcoatlarak. Right. Very good. Glad you could pronounce that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that doesn't happen, right? She gives birth to Paul. Yes, because she and, loves Leto Atreides. Right. And and she, uh, probably against the uh, wishes of the Bene Gesserit, uh, trains him in any case. Right, and he does have these skills. He has inherited these skills from her. And you see early in the film, she's pretty insistent on training him in this, and he's not uh, uh, terribly willing to do it. And you see in the, the story arc over the course of the uh, entire movie that he, he could, does come to change his mind, primarily based upon the fact that he sees uh, certain visions he's had of his own future uh, they're, they're spotty, incomplete, but he, he sees that they come to fruition and that he has some sort of uh, uh, destiny 
in 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 his life that he has to fulfill and that's part of the character arc of paul in this film he comes to accept that uh toward the end um, but anyway, that's yeah, my part of the exposition. He has exposition to go through there. this trial because the right. head of the Ben Gesserit, she visits Jessica, and he has to go through this trial where he has to stick his hand in this box. Yes. And he can't pull it out because there's a poison needle aimed right at his neck. So any movement, he'll will pierce him and kill him. So he has to keep his hand in this box. And the in in the box, he endures. It's, un, it's more uh, described in the book, but it's this unimaginable kind of pain. It's, it's the worst pain imaginable, but yeah. he has to keep his hand in there. And not move. Yeah, and not move. And he goes through all this, and he never pulls it out. He passes the test, which is very rare, because that's why they say he's the Quetzot Hadarach. Yes. And his, but he pulls it out, and his hand's perfectly fine. There's no bruising. Yeah. It was all imagined. And the yeah. big, the, one of the big phrases of Dune is that you must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. So it's this test of don't fear pain. Do not fear. Fear is the worst emotion you can have. Yes. And according, again, to the eschatology, only that uh, Messiah, I'm going to use the word Messiah instead of the other word because I can't pronounce Quitsat it. Hadarak. <laughs> but only that person would be able to have that kind of self-control over their uh, pain reactions and this uh, um, test shows uh, at, at the least that he possibly could be this messiah. Right. Yes. And so anyway, they are tasked by the Empire um, to take over the planet of Arrakis, also called Dune. Right. And Dune is a desert planet, but they have lots of the spice melange. And spice is not just something you put in food in, the, in this world. <laughs> yeah. It powers interstellar space travel. It is the most valuable um, element in this galaxy. So they have to mine the spice specifically on this planet. They, they are inheriting this from the Harkonnens. And the Harkonnen fa- house it was a notoriously brutal house and mm-hmm. more sadistic. Yeah. And so they come in and then they realize that there's something fishy going on. Everything, all the equipment and everything in this planet is in disrepair. It's not in very good shape. And they start to think that they've maybe been set up for failure by the Harkonnens. Yes. And in this planet is also a group called, this is why I was like, there's so much plot, so much things to discuss, but the yeah. Freeman, the Fremen. Yes. And they are a tribal nomadic group. Yeah. And they... They're they, indigenous. Indigenous. Yeah. They, they're natives to the uh, planet of Arrakis. And they wander around mainly using uh, things called still suits, which allows them to collect the water from their bodies and mm-hmm. recycle it so they're able to keep hydrated. Right. So anyway, we've realized that it's a trap, as uh, uh, Admiral Akbar would say in another yeah. space adventure. Right. The, the Harkonnens are really trying to take them over and eliminate House Atreides. Yeah. Oh, through- the, the thing is, the Emperor set them yes, all up. Yes, the Emperor right? set them up to basically give Harkonnen the power back and right. also eliminate House Atreides. Right. There's a big attack. They're betrayed by the father, and the, the, the doctor, Dr. You. Yes. And uh, he's more... He if In the book, there's more backstory of his yeah. wife being captured and trying to be rescued. He does this. It's briefly shown up in the movie. Yeah. But... um. He sets them up, but he also tries to, because they're going to kill Leto, but he puts this poison tooth capsule. Mm-hmm. And he says, if you get close enough to the Baron Harkonnen, you, you chew yeah. down his capsule, poison gas will release, and you'll kill him. Yeah. But he 
does that, but he's able to put up this shield in time because everybody's got these shields that protects them yeah. from certain things. So he kills a lot of people, but not the Baron. So the uh, Harkonnens have complete control, but um, through the help of Duncan Idaho, and with that name, I always say, "What is he? The long lost relative of Indiana Jones?" <laughs> yeah. You know this this great you know, all these goofy names in this movie, but some guys named Duncan Idaho. Idaho. <laughs> but anyway, he, he's a friend, uh, so he helps them escape. Um, Jessica and Paul, right. And at this time, Paul now learns to use that voice, which yeah, I love that sound effect because that voice is creepy. Yes, release him. Yes. Yeah, he, so we re- yeah. so they're able to kill the guys. Him and his mother escape. They eventually make contact with Duncan Idaho and Liet Kynes, who's an ecologist. Right. But then the um, Harkonnens hunt them down. They escape. There's a big showdown, but eventually they make it to the Fremen. Right. And um. Stilgar, I believe, is the head of the Fremen. They originally made an alliance because Leto was trying to ally himself with the Fremen and just instead of exploit them like the Harkonnens did. Right. But, so they, there's a previous meeting with each other, and eventually they, the Fremen originally want to kill them, but they decide um, to let them go. But there's this one guy, um, J- Jameis, yeah. who wants who says it's a dishonor, and so they, he has to duel Paul. Right. And, but while he's meet this, he meets this woman. Now, he's seen this woman in his visions. Yes. And it's somewhat romantic visions, but then there's these visions of horrible future, that things will be done in his name. Yes. So, But eventually he kills Jameis in a duel, and now they accept him and Jessica as one of them. And that's basically where the it end stops. of part one. There yeah. will be a part two, which I'm glad... Because yeah. Yeah, I think is, in part one is all, and I know this is a common complaint with this novel. It, it, part one, I think it, there's just so as as was demonstrated here with the synopsis. Uh, there's so much exposition, yes, and we and the back the political backstory. They, it's almost like they had to get it out of the way. And uh, there's they, the the last scene sets up the next film nicely, and I'm glad they got funding because I want to see. If they can kind of get out of that uh, expository bubble, as it were, yeah. and start getting to the uh, the war and the action, um, and you can kind of see hints of that at the end. Um, I love it as they're walking through the dunes in a single file to get to uh, a, a Fremen uh, location of civilization. They they kind of look off to the side there, and here's this man riding one of the sandworms yep. uh, in the distance. And, he, and she goes, basically, you haven't seen anything yet. Yeah. And great closing line. And I just hope they take yeah. it take it to that level. Because in, in preparation, because this is directed by Denis Villeneuve, who is one of my favorite directors. But I realized when he was making this movie, I've never read Dune. Now, I've never seen the... 83 film directed by David Lynch. So I figured to prepare for this, I should, you know, read the book because it's considered one of the greatest science fiction novels yeah. ever written. So I read it to prepare. And I was, like you said, you just get so, I like, I almost could, I had to put it down because, like, House Who? This person? Who's oh, yeah. the Baron? It's Who's like the... War and Peace in Sci Fi Land. Yeah, it's, it's so much. I, I can, honest, uh, honest uh, 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 confession here, I tried to read this book back. OG in high school, I think it was. And I got bogged down in it about halfway through and I gave up. <laughs> I yeah. really did. And this isn't 
the whole book, by the way. This is this just is telling half, half of the of book. book. Right. The and, film covers only yeah. half the novel. Yes. And that's the big problem if people also think, why don't you talk about the David Lynch one? The David, the biggest problem with that movie, it tells the whole book in just a two-hour yeah. movie. Yeah. And there's other ridiculous things in there. There's the uh, Sting is in the movie, and he emerges from a cryogenic cha- chamber wearing nothing but a golden man thong. <laughs> I, I, you, you go, what? I, there's other goofy stuff in that yeah, movie, but no. um, this is if you're a Dune fan, I feel like this is the movie you have been waiting for since the novel came out in the mid '60s. Yeah, and and it it effectively engages a lot of the themes, um, and you can tell. Uh, I, I think you can tell the, the various historical uh, inspirations that Herbert had when he wrote this thing, and, and you really start thinking about these things as you're watching the film. Um, one that really stands out, I think, is just the fact that uh, the the world where this very valuable resource um, is located is basically a desert. It's very important for interstellar travel, and uh, uh, he he adds a little a, a little angle to it. It's also something that people can ingest and has psychoactive properties and it engages psychic abilities. eyes turn like this very uh, illuminate shade of blue. Yeah. And um, so you can see, you can see some, I think some influence there of the early sixties when people were experimenting with psychedelic drugs. I think there's an element there that Herbert was tapping into, but the big one is, is the fact that, this natural resource is on a desert planet, and there is this larger empire um, and various other smaller kingdoms that need this stuff and have uh, uh, engaged various uh, political, as it were, methodologies to do it, right? So um, I think Herbert had in mind uh relatively recent in his day historical examples he was thinking of um the british and the americans and the russians all had an interest in the middle east for the 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 natural resource that is quite literally the driving engine of modern technology in all aspects uh, oil yes and um i think he does an interesting job there of um fictionalizing that uh, the kind of relationships that the smaller kingdom of Saudi Arabia had and still has with these larger powers that need this natural resource. And you can see uh, um, shades of uh, kind of the Soviet approach to uh, control of that natural resource there. And the uh, uh, uneasy position that the the indigenous culture is in, and the indigenous culture in the film, as in Saudi Arabia, happens to be one that is uh, uh, largely medieval in its structure. It it, it is it is a kingdom, right, with uh, smaller fiefs and so forth. Um, now they take that structure and they do kind of pasted onto the larger galactic um, empire. But, but I think that's on purpose, too. Because, again, I think he's reflecting a little bit there on the fact that in terms of the longer, larger scale of human history, 
that has been the dominant political organization. Uh, large nation states and democracies are relatively recent innovations. Um, although democracy does go back to the ancient world, it was still unusual uh, in its day. And to some extent, it's, it's still, even though it's uh, spread more widely now than it ever, ever has been, uh, it's nevertheless a relatively recent phenomena. So you have, you have in, in that, that kind of comparison he's making, you have the, the British and the American interest in Saudi Arabia to some extent being maybe like the House of Atreides. They're not just coming in there, conquering. They're, they're forming alliances, business uh, uh, agreements, that sort of thing. They're more prone to do that, where you have uh, somebody more like uh, the old USSR coming in and being much more heavy, top-down, uh, taking the emperor's route more so than uh, the Atreides route, although you see a mix in, in both. Yeah, and they, um, you recruit another army to do their bidding. Yes. With the, the Sardaukars, who was one of my favorite scenes in the movie, is when that guy's doing the throat singing, <laughs> and you see this creepy, they're draining the blood from these guys. And yeah. It's, just, it's creepy. It is disturbing as hell. It yeah. really is. And uh, he, he has, keeping the... Keeping that in mind, um, it was also interesting. I think that the the Fremen, for whom water is obviously the most natural, res- the most precious natural mm-hmm. resource, the extent they go to to uh, provide themselves with that sustenance, uh, they have a discussion when Paul and what's her name again, Jessica. They have a discussion when Paul and Jessica are taken. Uh, you know, they, they have made their way into Fremen territory and the Fremen are deciding what to do. And they are having this argument. And one of the things that uh, one of the people, people says is, you know, let's just treat them like we would any other people. Let's drain their blood, drink it. Right. Um, and nobody thinks mm-hmm. <laughs> a second thought about that. Um, interesting stuff that Herbert does there showing mm-hmm. the, the, the stresses of the environment and what it what, what it can do. Yeah, yeah, and because the main character in this movie, we, need, we, should, we should point out, people don't know this wasn't just one book. He wrote many, and he wrote many. His son like wrote prequels, and there's a whole like at least like ten books long of this yeah. thing. But um, the main character is Paul Atreides, and you know, in some sense, because he has this prophecy, has this power, the sixth sense, you can almost think like, oh, he's almost like Luke, like a Luke Skywalker. Yeah, but I think. You see, he has visions that he he becomes a conqueror. He becomes somewhat evil, and he's disturbed by that. Yes. In the book, he's also disturbed by that, and he's because even the Fremen see him as the the Mahdi, the Mahdi. Yeah, and and it's this prophesized one, like even Liet Kynes, who's who's not technically a Fremen, but she lives on Dune. Yeah, because. When they're setting up their still suits, she has to adjust everybody's, make sure it's correct. But he's as perfect, but he's never done it before. And she mutters under her breath, like, he'll know the ways as if he was born to them. Yeah. So she starts, she's even starting to believe in him. Yes. But what's interesting, because I haven't, I've only read this book, but I know in the second or third book, Paul Atreides starts to have that turn towards evil. So I, you could say he's almost a traditional hero in that traditional Luke Skywalker or Frodo Baggins as fantasy. Yeah. 
but he's you you have this disturbing feeling that he is going to go down a dark path not yeah. not quite like a luke skywalker yeah and it, that's interesting too because um this is a theme you know that going back to our very first film it was arrival wasn't it wasn't yes. the same director um also using a story that that toys with the idea of uh, i referred to it back way back then um the idea of time as a block right uh it's all already in some sense there and i think i drew the analogy at that time of um the different points of view you might have if if you were a uh considering a phonograph record right the point of view of the needle running through the song on the phonograph record is uh time is temporal there's a before uh, there's a present and then there's a future and it's always moving, right? And, you know, the needle is reading just one one instant at a time uh, serially and you get a song as a result. That's one view. And then the other the other view is kind of like looking at the record from overhead and being able to somehow take in the entire song at the same time in one single glance, right? So he's toying with that with Paul Atreides too. And over the course of the story, you do see that his view of his own future. I mean, he's, he's able to take that overhead look to some extent. It gets clearer and clearer. And because his father was killed and because he, he, uh, he perceives the injustice with, with, with which the Fremen are, have been treated, he feels like he's compelled, morally compelled, to take on that role now whether he actually has a choice in doing so is a completely different matter right maybe it is true that he can choose to do so but he's destined to do so as well we won't even discuss that but the point is he feels morally compelled to take it on even though he sees that risk that he's going to be taking part in and most importantly leading some atrocious behavior in the future and that's a, that raises a very interesting question. Is the trade-off, is the proportionality between the good that he can bring, bring about for the Fremen and apparently the galaxy, is it sufficient to outweigh the evil that he will also bring about in the further future? We don't know yet. We haven't seen the rest of the story yet. But he has decided, yes, it is. Partially because I think he does want to avenge his father, but I also think he has a sense of a more impartial sense of justice with how the Fremen have been treated. And it's a very interesting question that comes about with this unusual view of time. Yeah, especially in that one like bad dream he has. It's because the Fremen, one of their main attack tactics is to hide in the sand when their enemies are right beneath their feet literally they spring out of the sand and attack them there's this big attack scene but they're not dressed in their loose uh, fremen garb they've got these big time battle suits on yeah so it's like he's almost exploiting the fremen to basically be his own army yeah yeah so he in a way even though he's getting them to be to blindly follow them he's exploiting them as well yeah he's exploiting them and he's also serving what he think is thinks is justice on their behalf and it becomes a slippery slope of, of gray area where uh um he he they the relationship 
turns into one that is, to use the word, messianic. He's almost a god, right? And he can do no wrong, and they're going to blindly follow. I don't think he's comfortable with that, but at least this young Paul, right, that we see in this first movie, thinks, still, I'd be liberating them and letting them uh, decide their own destiny and not be at the uh, the whims of these larger and clearly immoral forces that the empire is uh, foisting upon them. Um, but, you know, it raises that question. Is he going to end up just being as bad? We don't know yet. We don't know yet, but he has an inkling that he may be. Um, or he may be bad, but not as bad. <laughs> and maybe the, the trade-off is sufficient. Um, but in any case, he's terribly uncomfortable with it. You can see that. Yes, and with that, I think there have been criticisms of this movie, which, in my opinion, are a load of you-know-what. But um, one, the criticism that Paul Atreides is a white savior. The white savior trope is in a white guy comes into this land of not-white people, somewhat sort of behind or backwards and he sort of educates them i think the the biggest example would be the king and i yeah but um this is not that he's not educating them on anything no they're educating him yes and the the other people say because people they say this film is promotion of fascism somehow they they, the thing they say is a lot of alt-right groups are loving this movie or love dune the story in particular and that's all the things they have. And they're like, this is not promoting fascism. And if anything, it's warning of a guy who yeah. would possibly become a dictator and how dictators become con- turn in control because right. they have this charisma and they're saving people from this horrible time. And they just get addicted to that power and they keep taking and yeah. taking and nobody's going to question them because they love them. Yeah, it's a cautionary tale uh, similar to one we've talked about many times in different films, but it's a cautionary tale similar to the Ring of Gaiji's cautionary tale. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and this time, this time the, the the magic power, as it were, that um, becomes uh, dangerous when wielded uh, with impunity is political influence and the kind of um, charisma that messianic charisma that politicians often have that is clearly the cautionary tale here it's certainly not extolling it as what something we want done it's it's saying look at the person of paul atreides see how kind of by imperceptible steps he finds himself falling into it and taking some of those imperceptible steps for completely justifiable reasons um with the foresight he has because of that unique relationship he has to time, he has a foreboding about the future. He's not looking forward to being a dictator, but he sees literally Mm -hmm. (laughs) no other path to help these people out. So, no, I, I, I think they're missing the mark there. If they're thinking this is some kind of sci fi Lenny Reifenstahl movie, no, that's just bogus. I, I, it's not even a plausible surface reading of the story. Yeah, it's people who don't understand, and they see because the uh, a bad political group of people are praising it, then they say, oh, it must 
obviously be supporting that viewpoint. And yeah. we, we want to gr- shake those people and say, just because somebody likes something and they're bad does not mean that thing they like is promoting their viewpoint. Yeah. You're, you're yeah. an idiot. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. so that rant's over. But um, <laughs> what you were talking about Paul Atreides, and I was talking about, you know, similarities between other characters like a luke skywalker if there's a real life similarity i would say it would be lawrence of arabia yeah. even the film lawrence of arabia would be um very similar the way he finds himself among these different arabs gets them to unite together against the turks yes and he, he wins all these resounding battles and they have all these great victories and they start especially in the movie there's that scene after they attack that train full of Turkish supplies and the music swelling. He's walking on top, and they're just so enamored with him. But in that movie, after a while, he starts getting mad with power, and he starts committing war crimes. And, you know, Omar Sharif, who's fighting with him, even he's disgusted at the end by some of the things he does. Yes, exactly. Another cautionary tale. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's interesting you bring that movie up because it came it came to mind watching this one uh you know with this with, with that great white savior uh uh critique in mind right um in that in that film the choice of peter o'toole right to play the role uh with the blue eyes uh I, it came to mind with the fremen having the blue eyes in this film <laughs> um and i also to 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 address the uh critique of the film uh that that same critique of the film i think they very carefully chose people that um uh don't look like peter o'toole as the main characters for every single political group in the film um so i I think that militates against that against that reading as well i know there have been some um groups of um uh, uh special interest groups of for people of Middle Eastern uh, extraction that didn't like the film because the people cast were not of Middle East extraction. Again, I think they're kind of missing the point. Yeah, this is not uh, set in the Middle East. This yeah. is a completely fictional universe. Even if yeah. they are, that group is adopting you yeah. know, Arab culture. It's still, it's not Arab literally. No, and you know, it's it's Frank Herbert throwing in a little bit of everything he yeah. knew in the novel, and they're they're reflecting that. There's there's Arab, there's Spanish as well. Uh, there's there's all kinds of culture. There's even even I guess I should say because it was more recent history for him. The uh, the empire looking a bit fascistic, right? With the, the, I'm thinking of that scene with the blood being drawn. And, 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 yeah, I love that. You know, that's all. That's all there, but you know that's there because of uh, uh, his his view of recent history. Just just like the the he must have had in mind Aramco, Saudi Aramco, and the story of the House of Saud with Lawrence uh, and so forth. When when they were uh, when he was writing this novel, so um, yeah, it, it's not Earth. <laughs> well, even in terms of powerful politicians, it should be known that he was a distant relative of. Joe McCarthy, and that's the the man who founded McCarthyism. So uh, yeah. you, you could almost see maybe if there's a bit of McCarthyism in either the Harkonnens or maybe even in Paul, as far as this charismatic leader who gets yeah. people under his wing. Yeah, and, and again, uh, it's it's reflected uh, that that potential threat of the charismatic is mm-hmm. is reflected in in various parts of the film, various characters, not just Paul, 
Um, but uh, again, I think that's the strength of the film in, in terms of, which also kind of forces the exposition on you too. He, he tries to reflect the political complexities um, of uh, that kind of uh, relationship that exists between groups, indigenous groups that live in some particular area that has a very valuable natural resource and larger political units that, that want to in some way gain that natural resource, either through conquest or trade or alliance. Um, he's wanting to, he's wanting to show the complexities of that in a fictional world, um, to reflect the complexities here in our real world. And I think he does a pretty good job. Yeah. And even, um, cause this is only part one of the books, but I've read the whole book. So there's still stuff they haven't gotten to yet, but when you read that second half and it, gets more to how he's going to get, you know, confront the Harkonnens and the Baron Harkonnen and get some payback for what they did to his father. It isn't just absolute conquest, just destroy them, wipe them all out. He still plays that political game yes. and makes certain moves, I won't spoil it, yeah. where puts him in the place of power, but also keeps everybody happy, including the emperor. All right. Uh, getting close to the end of my questions. Anything else we should discuss before we wrap up? I'm just, I'm just glad that this film is doing well because it wasn't even confirmed if they were going to greenlight a sequel until let's see how the box office did. But it is doing well. Yeah. And because unfortunately his previous film, which we discussed, Blade Runner 2049, did not make do very well financially, and yeah. that hurt. That was bad. But I'm glad this one's. Yeah, doing well. I, I think it's 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 worth the sequel. I really do. And the only other thing I can think to bring up is, I don't know if you noticed this, but the Baron reminds me of Colonel Kurtz. Yeah. Um, I think the the uh, fact that Herbert was thinking about oil is represented with in that scene where he's in the bath, right? Mm-hmm. And that clearly looks like petroleum he is bathing in, right? And I don't know why he also reminded me of Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> I was almost say Darth Vader, or like when Darth Vader is in that box, we see him with the mask off, and it's this creepy thing. So almost a bit of yeah. Vader too. So I, I think that that, that was uh, the director uh, kind of giving a nod to maybe those two. And, and again, you know, Colonel Kurtz again, somebody that gets drunk on power and does terrible things. So. I don't know if that was purposeful or not, but I noticed it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. You can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, which episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Sing Walk Without Rhythm, It Won't Attract the Warm. <laughs>